Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Derek Attridge. Professor Derek Attridge is a professor of literature at York University in England and um, is here to talk to us about a wonderful book he wrote called The Singularity of Literature, published by Routledge. The book was originally published in 2004, if I'm not mistaken, but then again it was republished in 2019 in Routledge Classics series. Derek, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, Moteja. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a little about yourself and your field of expertise, and more importantly, why you decided to write a book about the singularity of literature. Um, as you said, I'm uh, attached to the University of York. I'm actually Emeritus Professor in the Department of English and Related Literature. And uh, I, re- I retired from, from my, my, my actual teaching post few years ago, having been at York for 20 odd years. Uh, And my field of expertise is quite hard to describe because most literary academics define themselves by period, but I've published work and done research across a number of periods, really from Homer to the present. Um, So it's more a question of my interest in certain aspects of literature, particularly the, the whole idea of the literary, what it means to to call something a literary work, um, the distinctiveness of literary language uh, as it um, finds itself in a variety of times and places and genres. And I suppose more particularly, you could say, uh, I've been interested since writing my PhD in poetry and poetic form. Uh, I then got interested in James Joyce and Irish writing and various forms of um, more innovative writing, the writing of modernism. I have a new book coming out uh, in a couple of months, which is on Joyce's and post-Joycean writing. Um, I grew up in South Africa, so I've always had an interest in South African literature. So uh, that's another string to my bow. And um, throughout these various uh, projects, if you like, I've had an interest in the philosophical dimension of literature and thinking about literature. So um, literary theory has been a constant presence, whether in the foreground or whether in the background. So I've got I got particularly interested in the work of Jacques Derrida uh, and uh, the importance of literature to him and um, the way his work can be thought of as uh, having a great deal to say about about literature. Uh, it was really interesting you just mentioned Derrida. I actually wanted to ask you about that as well um, because I can see that when writing this book, The Singularity of Literature, I could see the influence of Derrida. So it would be good if you could explain to us how Derrida influenced um, you in terms of writing this book or deciding to write this book. Well, um, I think we'd have to go back to uh, another book, which is called um, Peculiar Language, which was a book I wrote in the mid-1980s, I guess. in which I traced a recurrent issue in literary thinking, 
really starting with Aristotle. Um, but my my first big example was from the Renaissance, George Putnam's attempt to just to say what was distinctive about literature, and followed that through a chapter on Wordsworth and a chapter on Roman Jakobson, a chapter on Saussure, and various attempts to say what literature is or what that je ne sais quoi is that distinguishes the literary from the non-literary. Time and again, people were, were able to give descriptions or rules which would explain almost everything about, about literature, about how literature works and how literature is distinctive, but always there was some little element which could not be subjected to rules. And I found in working through this issue, Derrida's account of literature was extremely useful. Derrida, not just of literature, but Derrida's philosophy more generally, um, particularly Derrida's notion of the supplement, of the, 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 which he takes from uh, Rousseau's writing, the, the notion that um, there is a, a structure of what he called supplementarity, wh where, whereby uh, an entity, let us say, fails to be whole because something can't quite be uh, admitted, and yet the thing that can't be admitted is absolutely crucial to what that thing is. And of course, this is exactly the pattern that I was finding again and again in attempts to say what literature was. The, the, the literature is. There was always the, the little extra something that seemed maybe quite minor. People gave it different names, decorum for, for Putnam, for instance, in the 16th century, but actually it turned out to be quite central to the very idea of literature. So Derrida was enormously helpful there in writing that book. And then I wanted to explore further um, this this idea that uh, lit literary language, the, the 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 force of literature is something that isn't quite explicable in terms of rational discourse, rules, logic. There's a, there's another story to tell about the emergence of that book, but um, you're probably going to ask me about that anyway. <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, the instrumental model of reading text. That's something you 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 start the book with. You 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 sort of critical this of this model. What what is what do you mean by that instrumental model of reading texts? So a great deal of writing about literature, um, a great deal of reading of literature begins with an agenda. Um, literary critics, and this would be particularly true, I think, of a period from the 1980s through to, to early this century. Um, critics, well, they, they could get hold of in order to um, fulfill, pursue a particular goal, be it uh, understanding some historical practice or understanding the author's biography or finding ideological, um, unpleasant ideological features in it. Uh, this was obviously a very popular a popular thing with, with many um, Marxist critics, for instance. Um, in all sorts of ways, going to the work, treating it as an instrument, as an instrument towards some goal. And I have no objection to that practice in itself, absolutely fine. It's produced some very interesting work. But what it seems to me to leave out, and this goes back again to the question, what is distinctive about literature, is the literary. You could go to any text, any piece of writing or speaking, and treat it in that way. I wanted to know what 
with different about literature and, and the experience of literature. If I read a novel and I'm moved by it, I find it powerful and life-changing, what is that all about? That's not about using the novel in order to do something I had already planned to do. It's allowing the novel to speak to me and to change me, to, to, to make me something that I wasn't when I started reading it. And, and it seemed to me that if you if you approach literature instrumentally, that's not likely to happen because you already know what you want out of the mm. text. Mm. And this reminds me of uh, this recent post critique thing because it's it's going back to the text again and tries to get rid of that, let's say, hermeneutics of suspicion. And that uh, I think it called symptomatic reading of texts. Um, you have a number of uh, fascinating concepts in this book, but let us start with singularity. What do you mean by singularity of literature? So this is what I've been talking about already, the, the, the fact that literature, it has two meanings, but first of all, the mm. fact that literature is, is different, that literature works in a way that other types of language don't. So it is, it's singular in the sense of... Mm. Peculiar. My my other book that I mentioned is called Peculiar Language, which is a phrase that uh, Wordsworth uses, but it's the same idea that something happens to language in literature that doesn't happen anywhere else, and something therefore happens to the reader of literature that doesn't happen to the reader of any other kind of text. So literature is a singular cultural practice, but singularity has a has a more deeply philosophical sense, again coming from Derrida in particular, as a kind of um difference let's say that is not specifiable by 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 rules by positivistic accounts the the difference of literature literature's literary works different difference from every other piece of writing is not simply simply something you can describe in in positivist terms so singularity as Derrida sees it, the singularity of an utterance would be its uniqueness. But I, I don't want to use uni uniqueness because that suggests something kind of solid and um, something with a core that's completely different from anything else. Singularity is a kind of uniqueness which is open to change, open to new contexts. So... Let's take let's take the play Romeo and Juliet because I, I included Derrida's reading of Romeo and Juliet in a collection of his essays on literature that I edited. Romeo and Juliet, we know it's 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 got an existence, it's got an identity. It existed in the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century as Romeo and Juliet, and yet it's never been the same as it was when it first appeared. And Derrida's argument is that it it keeps its identity only because it's open to change. If there was some miraculous way in which Romeo and Juliet never changed, if if it was said the same thing in everybody's reading of it or performance of it, it would it would die. We couldn't possibly relate to the original. But of course, it doesn't. So singularity is a kind of uniqueness, which is not because something is unchanging but because it is actually open to change. And through change, through the, the ever new context in which it finds itself, in, in which it's interpreted, it remains in some sense 
the same. So sameness and difference are not on opposite sides. If they are, they're the sides of the same coin. I don't know if that is a clear enough exposition. It's obviously a tricky concept because it doesn't fall into into neatly logical ways of, of thinking. And, and you have uh, um, you have a number of other concepts that I'd like to talk about, like alterity, invention, originality. And I guess they're all tied with the concept of uh, uh, singularity, which you just mentioned. But before that, I'd like to ask about the act of reading, which you call events. So let's, and that's what makes a literary work maybe literary. So can you tell us what do you mean by saying that uh, reading a literary text is an event? And then later on, I'll, I can ask you more about uh, your other concepts like alterity, inventiveness of language or invention, and originality. But uh, can you tell us what you mean by an ev event? Sure. Um, this part of my argument would is a kind of rejection of the notion of the literary work as an object. This seems to me another another wrong path. Uh, well, I shouldn't say wrong path because, as I said about instrumental readings, they're not wrong. They just aren't getting at what is literary. And similarly, to treat the literary text as an object, it seems to me, is not to treat it as a literary work. It's to treat it as I don't know a piece of writing. You can you can study you can study it philologically, or you can study it um, as a visual object. Uh, you can start to study it as a historical object, but it only, for me, becomes literary when it's being read in a particular way, in a non-instrumental way. Uh, so, the, if we if we think of the, the old question of the ontology of the literary work, what what exactly is its mode of being? For me, its mode of being is an event. It's something that happens. Um, I've had arguments with philosophers who say, well, that, that means there's only, there's no single Romeo and Juliet. There's only every every reading of Romeo and Juliet is a new Romeo and Juliet. And I say, yes, because it's singular. Singularity is is the thing that is the, is the idea that even though it's, uh, it, it exists in a million forms because it's read by a million readers or seen on the stage by a million viewers, it's still the same Romeo and Juliet. Up to a point, I mean, it can be then travestied or, or truncated or whatever. But we know then this is a travesty of Romeo and Juliet, that the, the idea of Romeo and Juliet is still there. So so the, the literary work has its being as a literary work in an event. And of course, if you ask what kind of event, and this is something I've, worked, I've been working on more recently, filling out the argument that was, I think, really only implicit in, in singularity of literature, that what the kind of event it is is an experience in in the mind of and in to some extent in the body of a reader. So if you want to talk about the political efficacy, for instance, of a of a work of literature, you have to think about individual readers experiencing it as literature. It might it might be effective politically in other ways. It might be effective as propaganda or historical documentation. But if it's effective as literature, it can only be because it has changed reading. The experience of that event is what has made it literature and has also made it capable of changing somebody's outlook, somebody's views, somebody's understanding of the world. And um, l l let us talk about alterity. So in this process of 
this this event, there's also another concept, alterity. So uh, it's it's being exposed to a whole new world. So what do you mean by alterity, and what is it the product of? How is it? How is that experience of alterity created when readers are in an event of reading? Yeah, so that's a very very good question. That gets to the heart of the whole question of of the ethics of literature. Um, I'd have to go back to Derrida and through Derrida to another French philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, mm. who I really discovered because Derrida wrote a long, um, difficult and important essay about Levinas in one of his early books. And having read that, I thought I've got to find out what this is all about. And Levinas uh, had one big idea, really, which he developed in many, many directions. But but his big idea was that ethics, the ethical relation precedes any philosophical thought, any pure philosophical thought, that and ethics is fundamentally responsibility to the other, the sense that I am, I am under an obligation to an other. Now, for Levinas, the other was a kind of manifestation of God, but, but, but I don't feel you, you need Jewish Talmudic scholar. Because the idea of um, alterity or, or otherness itself is so productive. And Derrida, too, was struck by the productiveness of the idea of alterity without buying into the theology. And he was critical of many aspects of Levinas's thought. So um, I don't know whether to tell you the story of the, um, yeah, I will, <laughs> how the singularity of literature came into being. Um, it's a bit of a detour, but it, it's it's how I began to think of the importance of alterity. Uh, as I, I'm sure you know, I got very interested in the writings of J.M. Coetzee. J.M. Coetzee is a novelist, a South African novelist, was very little known when I was first given by a friend um, his, his first book, which came out in the mid-1970s. Um, and I was really struck that he was a writer who was doing something different, something new. And I kept reading his books as they came out, started writing essays on them, publishing a little, decided I needed to write a book. Now, one of the um, striking features of Kutsi's writing, especially those books uh, that ha had been published by the time I was writing my book on, on his work, was the way figures appear who are in some ways other to the culture and to the to the um, narrator very often uh, and who can't be assimilated into the uh, the, the network of, of normal daily life, let's say. Age um, of Iron involves a woman writing a, writing a long, impossibly long letter about a, a man, a drifter, a, a, a street man who's appeared in, in her backyard and how he how she has to take on the responsibility of this man even though you know she has no official responsibility but responsibility is just something she feels she she has she has to take on board and i i wanted to argue that kutsia's writing itself is a way of staging this this repeated experience of alterity and it was very it was central not just to the characters in the book, but to the reading of the novels. Again, I, I subtitled um, that book, The Event of Reading, because um, it seemed to me that 
could say was exposing us to, our, to, to, to the force, not just the idea of alterity, but the force of alterity, being literary works, being, being events rather than arguments. They, exp they expose the reader to the force of alterity. So you can see how my reading of Kutsia, my reading of Levinas, thanks to Derrida, uh, came together. And I worked on this book. And also many of Kutsia's critical writings and his comments and interviews seem to me to feed right into this idea of, of the literary as singular, literary as um, somehow not amenable to the norms and rules and um, assumptions of our daylight um, world of, of um, expectations and, and um, thinking. So uh, I worked and worked on this book thinking it was going to be a combination of readings of the novels and speculation, argument about the theoretical issues that they throw up. This wasn't working and I realized at a certain point I was actually writing two books. And so I split the two projects, one book on Kutsi's novels, the other book on the theoretical issues around singularity and alterity that I found in Kutsia and Levinas and Derrida. So one became J.M. Kutsia and the Ethics Reading, and the other became the Singularity of Literature. So you can see how alterity was actually central to, to the whole project, and through alterity, the idea of, of ethics. Uh, and that, that makes sense now. I, I actually forgot to mention that when I introduced you, forgot to mention your works, and one of them is uh, and Ethics of Reading that we just talked about. Uh, so how how is this the alterity, this, this alterity created in this act of reading when readers pick up a work of literature? Is it their experience, is it partly partly their experience that they bring it as well as the textual and linguistic elements of the work. Uh, that's what I'm curious to know more about. I think it varies. I think, um, I mean, a lot of this is just introspection. What, what, what is it like to read a powerful literary work? Clearly, I mean, I should make this clear right at the start that I'm not talking about day-to-day -day experiences of literature, you know, consuming a novel just, just for sheer enjoyment and putting it down again having had a pleasant experience most of our reading is like that I, I, I'm, I'm only interested not only interested in I'm particularly interested in uh, those experiences of literature that we would describe as in some way profound or changing what, what happens when a literary work changes us that's my real interest because that's something I think literature or the arts more generally, you know, a lot of what I say in the singularity of literature about about the literary work could be said, I think, about the experience of painting or sculpture or music, theatre, so on. Um, so what is it that happens when you are profoundly moved by a work of art? And it seems to me you can only start to talk about that if you think in terms of being exposed to a way of being, a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of seeing the world, a way of understanding language that is new to you, which is all that I mean by alterity. But when I say new to you, it's almost certainly going to be new to more than just you, because you are a product of your culture. You are 
we might come back to this, you are what I call an idiocultural, you are um, a nexus within a larger culture or a group of cultures, a set of cultures. And so if you are changed by it, implicitly it's possible of change it's pos it, there is a possibility that it is change it could change it might change um, more than just you so if it's the case that you are being exposed to something you've never been exposed to before if that's what this work of literature does it is in some form other to you it's it's it is an example of alterity but because you are there as a member of your culture, not just a sort of sole individual singularity, oh, I shouldn't use the word singularity, a, a sole subjective individual, because you are part of your culture and a reflection of your culture, this otherness is other to your culture as well. I mean, clearly there are going to be cases where your idiosyncratic self is changed by or struck by something in a, in a work of literature that wouldn't happen to anybody else because it's just you know because you happen to have this experience in your childhood and here's a work of literature that chimes in with it and you think oh my god i now rethink i am now rethinking the way i used to um, be 50 years ago and this work of literature has changed my life well that's different that's something that's purely personal purely subjective but more generally being exposed to a great work of art um, and finding yourself changed by it is something to do with the work's capacity to to recalibrate the, the the cultural sphere, as it were, the cultural fabric within which you you belong. I don't know if you're going to ask me this, but of course, immediately there are questions about work of the past. You know, maybe John Donne's poems burst on the scene in the 17th century and they were something completely new and they changed people's lives. How is it I can read a, a poem now by John Donne? You know, and read The Sun Rising and be immensely, my, my eyes could be open to the nature of, of love through a poem written several hundred years ago. Um, do you want to go there? Because <laughs> we can yeah. pursue that. It's a, it's a challenging one. It's one that I'm not sure I could completely answer, but it's true, and it's something that you know, many people have commented on. Isn't it remarkable that works of the past can still um, operate in this way? Can still seem to be introducing something new into into the, the cultural fabric, um, and it has to do, I think, with what one of the other terms you said we should talk about, and that is inventiveness. Yeah. Um, if I if I use that in a rather specialized way, it's because I want to try and get at this rather remarkable transhistorical power that works of art have. Um, that's to say, the inventiveness that Dunn displayed in bringing new powers into the into language, into the English language in the 1590s. Um, is still alive today. We still respond to that inventiveness. Um, and I want to distinguish between uh, inventiveness and originality, which I see as something historical. So Dunn was original. Clearly, that's a historical fact. Dunn was original. We can look at other poets writing at the time. We can look at the poetry that he would have been able to read. And we can say, wow, this poet was really original poet. 
and then somebody might come up and uh, might page through some old documents and find other poetry written just before Don, which he was Im imitating, which nobody knew about. And then we would have to say, oh, Don is not so original after all this other poet was much more original. That's originality. Inventiveness is a version of originality that, that has this trans-historical power, that Dunn's inventiveness um, is still alive today, is still something we can, we can experience today. If we come to it with both the kind of open-mindedness, willingness to be, to be changed by it, that, that all our great art requires, but also if we come to it with some, some sense of uh, the history of English poetry, maybe you would say, or the, 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 the writings around the period. You know, I don't think it is something that could, could, could be completely carried by the poem if we knew nothing, if we just you know, picked up this bit of writing, knew nothing about, about it. That, that's an open question though, you know. Um, and as I say, still a puzzling, a puzzling fact that I think we have to we have to work on. How how does inventiveness it it can it can die in Dunn's case, writers in say the 18th, 19th century didn't find him inventive. They found him um extravagant, uh, wild, but you know, not particularly powerful. Whereas when he was rediscovered earlier in the 20th century, because the context, the cultural context of that century, that period, had become receptive now to this inventiveness, he once again became an inventive poet. I would say not going back to this question of singularity as being something that's open to change. I'm not suggesting that the inventiveness that his original readers would have found is identical to the inventiveness that we find or that the early 20th century found. That changes too. But something about that that work um, got back uh, the power to open people's eyes, to take people into a realm that they hadn't been taken into before. And there's a related question there, which is, how can I read The Sun Rising today, having read it probably a hundred times before over the last 60 years, and still find it inventive? So invention is not, again, it's not originality. It's not, it's not that this is just different from anything else I've read. It's a power that the language has to do something to me. Mm. And it's a little different every time. I'm not reading it the same as I did 20 years ago, but it's still inventive. Mm. Uh, it, it's, it sounds sort of similar to that reader response theory. Uh, am I right to assume that if I want to sum it up, it's partly with the form of language and as well as the experience of the reader that makes it inventive or original, let's say, throughout uh, a period of, say, 200 years, people read it and find it inventive. So it's also it's it's readers as well as and of course, when I when I talk about readers, uh, it's also the cultural milieu, the sociopolitical milieu that they live in as well. That makes it inventive and still people can relate to that work. And uh, again, am I right to assume that there is nothing literary in a text by essence? So what makes it literary is that event, that experience of readers engaging with the text. Is that is that the right assumption? You're absolutely right. Yeah, there's no 
no literary essence. In fact, Derrida mm. himself says something like this, very much like this in an interview I did with him, which I published in in, in my book. Mm. Is that yes, there's no there's no literary essence. Um, you might say that any text is potentially literary, something that is written today as a piece of journalism, a piece of history in 50 years might be found to be literary. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It follows, this is, if, if there's no essence, if there's nothing inherent in the text that makes it literary, then it must be possible for, for any text to become mm. literary. It reminds me of that uh, letter Martin Luther King. I don't remember the title of the letter he wrote from prison and I, I'm sure he didn't mean it to be a piece of literature, but now I guess in most of uh, rhetoric classes, they read that text. And I hadn't read it until like 10 years ago. And I had a friend who said, how could you have not read this? This is one of the best pieces of literature. That's the term used. I'm sure Martin Luther King didn't mean it to be literature, but it has become because partly it's, it's also the experience that readers bring into a text. Yes, and this, this raises the whole issue of, of how do you define or determine the borders of the literary? Um, mm. I don't think it's not necessarily the the books in that section of the library labeled literature. There are plenty of his, histories, for instance, historical pieces of historical writing that use literary techniques and can be read profitably mm. and valuably as as literature so it's not a it's not a category that's determined by the labels as it were it's a category that's mm. determined by the experience of readers who have to then be reading it with an openness to that possibility um you can't you know if you want to read something and and likewise you can read you can read a literary text as purely purely as history you can read a historical text purely as literature there's another thing that i'm curious Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. There's another thing I'm a little bit curious about. It's not in your book, but I'm, I'm keen to know your thoughts on that. It's the whole idea of making a text, the the cult, the cult of making a text, let's say, canonical. Uh, there, the, of course, literary. I I don't remember the name of the author. There was this Australian uh, author who wrote. A, novel called Carpentia, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, if I remember. And the book, uh, the story that I heard, and I could be wrong, I heard it through a friend of mine who was working on Australian literature, that a lot of publishers turned it down. One publisher agreed to publish the book. They published it and it won an award in Australia and it became a canonical text. So apart from um, the, the act of reading, uh, singularity of literature. Do you think that literary institutions, literary prizes also play a role in making a text literary? Because when I approach a text, I usually come with some expectations or presuppositions. I know this, for example, Hamlet is, a, I've heard Hamlet is a great play. So I read it and I expect to be uh, surprised, to be amazed. And I am because I bring those expectations to the text again. But what do you think about the role of literary institutions or literary prizes in making something canonical or literary, let's say? Yeah, well, they don't make it literary, but they do bring readers to it. And they do, as you say, bring readers to it with certain expectations. Now, all literary effects depend on expectation. Um, if a book surprises you, it's because you were expecting something and it didn't happen or something else happened. If it disappoints you, 
if, if it any any effect that it has on you is because you're expecting something. It it may it may satisfy your expectations. It may not. The whole art of narrative is creating tension, which it, which which is a kind of expectation for a certain conclusion, and it may satisfy that conclusion and give you a satisfying ending, or it may give you a it may end in midair and leave you unsatisfied or deliberately um, wondering what next. So so. Yeah, so all sorts of expectations play into the reading of a text. Uh, genre is entirely about expectation. This thing says novel on the cover, so now I'm going to read it as a novel. It may that it may be a trick, it may maybe something else, but that's how I expect it to to turn out. Um, or a, a piece of writing on a page, the the lines don't go to the right hand margin. Ah, it's a poem, so I read it as a poem. So yeah, so literary prizes uh, are, are one of many things that would influence the way you read. Of course, you know, you, you say you read something that you've been told is, is a, a great, amazing piece of work, and then um, it is, but the opposite can happen. You can be very disappointed if you if you come to it with high expectations and it doesn't live up to those expectations. Whereas if you came to it with no expectations, you might have you might have enjoyed it. Um, so when I talk about the importance of of having an open mind when you read something, of not being instrumental in your reading, that doesn't mean you come to it with a, a kind of blank slate. You come to it with a very very rich slate, as it were. You come to it with all sorts of expectations, ideas, assumptions, contextual knowledge. Um, if you know something about late 16th century poetry, then you come to done with, with certain expectations, as I was saying earlier. Um, and that's that's how literature works as an event and as an experience through 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 all all those. Probably it's a good idea to try to. Um, minimize the effect of things like prizes um to be able to actually can tell yourself well this is one of those prizes but i'm not going to i'm going to find out for myself rather than assume from the beginning it's going to be great because i might either be disappointed or i might falsely find it great without it really really being so but can we talk about about uh, idioculture yeah, uh, yeah, that was my next question as well. You have this term idioculture. What, what do you mean by idioculture? So, so that's exactly my my attempt to find a word to use that isn't uh, that doesn't imply the 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 things about subjectivity or subject that um, people often used to decry um, theories of literature which involve an emphasis on reading. You know, oh, you, it's, it, you can't say literature is, or literary work is, is only comes into being when it's being read because that's a purely subjective phenomenon. And, and you know, we're all just individual subjects. Well, I, I would prefer to say we're, we are cultural, um, what's the right word? Um, the word I came up with idioculture on the on the model of um, idiolect, which is the version of the language that you as an individual speak, because every one of us has a slightly different version of the language because of our own personal histories. But it's still 
part of the culture. So it's like it's like an idiolect, but it's a, it's a, cult, a cultural version of an, an idiolect. It's not just language; it's all the it includes language, but all the other cultural properties, cultural um, ideas, cultural tendencies, cultural expectations, cultural even emotions, ways of ways of feeling. All those um, form the 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 individual. Um, so that's why I was saying when you come to a text, you're not coming as a blank slate or you're not coming naked to the text, you're coming as a, a member of this culture. And I think it's important to stress that it's not uh, a coherent um, agglomeration of cultural norms and habits and, and ideas and, and feelings. Uh, it, it's bound to be um, full of tensions and contradictions we're not we're not you know pure simple individuals so uh, in a way um this is a, a a useful thing this is a good thing because literary works it seems to me and this is another aspect of the creation of the literary work that i that i stress an inventive a truly inventive work it seems to me is something that uh as I've said, introduces otherness into the culture, but it, it does this, or certainly one way of doing this, is to exploit the very tensions and and um, obfuscations and marginalizations that the culture is is having to to rely on in order to be what it is. So take a cultural moment in a particular geographical space it see it might seem like a coherent you know it seems like all all the members of that community feel and speak and think the same way but of course they don't and there are there are things that are unsaid or that are excluded that are repressed what an artist may well do is to find ways of of having that repressed material speak which is taking us back obviously to the idea of alterity these are other to the culture so um the culture by virtue of the culture's non-coherence incoherence the, the artist is able to introduce otherness now as a as a as an ideologue as a reader with my own complex not fully coherent cultural fabric uh, which, which constitutes me as an individual and as a reader I too uh, can allow, can find that that literary work is allowing me to experience alterity, allowing me to experience um, things that I had repressed or uh, was simply not aware of outside of my ken as a member of of the culture. So this this um, the, the complexity and lack of coherence is a is a phenomenon that both makes literary creation possible and literary reading possible because again it goes back to singularity singularity is not a pure uh, uniqueness it, it's a it's a it's a complex and again not necessarily coherent um way in which the general is particularized a whole lot of general uh, ways of feeling ways of thinking ways of being general rules general norms are um, manifest in a singular instance and through that singularity can have an effect on my singularity because I too am a 
a singular singular individual rather than a unique individual i'm not i'm not separated out no man is an island as Dan would told us that was a wonderful answer and you also uh answered some of the other questions that i had uh one of them was if the reader is a passive recipient of what is in the text which is obviously not the case you talked about idio culture um and uh, when 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 reading a book about literary a literary work or what makes a work literary i well what kind of surprised me was um the ethical aspects which you you have a chapter on um ethics and responsibility so how is it related to artistic creation and you have a quote in the book on page 178 uh, which is, quote, responding resp uh, responding responsibly to a work of art means attempting to do justice to it as a singular other. Uh, I would appreciate if you could talk about the questions of ethics and responsibility um, and how it's related to singularity of literature. Okay, well, um, let's go back to Levinas. For him, of course, responding to the other is the heart of ethics. Um, and in his case, he's thinking of other, mostly human beings, not probably not animals, although many thinkers have developed Levinas's thinking in the direction of non-human others as well, um, non-animal others too, possibly. Uh, I'm the, I'm taking it in the direction certainly of non non-human others, or to the the product of human creativity rather than to humans. Um, but if that's a legitimate transfer of an idea from one sphere to another, then the idea of responsibility um, is key. What am I responsible to then, it's the question, or putting it in Levinas's terms, actually, it's not so much responsibility to as responsibility for. Levinas says, I am responsible for the other. The widow, the stranger, the orphan, he takes that lovely phrase from the Bible. Um, the other needs me and I have to take responsibility for, well, not even have to take responsibility for, I, I am responsible for, I find myself responsible for, I can't escape responsibility for the other. Um, so the ethics of reading for me would mean, using that, that other phrase that you quoted, doing justice to the, the, the work as a reader and as a critic writing about the, about the work. I'm trying to do justice to its singularity to what makes it singular to what makes it unlike any other work of literature not as i say as a unique historical object but as something which is still alive today trying to in other words as a critic my job is to try and make it live in that same way or not identical but in a similar way for other for other readers um so the the responsibility that's involved is responsibility you could say to this piece of language, but I, I, I take it further than that. I think it's responsibility to the creative work or the inventive work embodied in that piece of writing, which in a way is responsibility to the author, N not the author as a historical individual that I you know, might read about in a biography, though clearly it's probably the work of that author, though that remains a historical um, postulation, but the author has embodied in in the work. The author, if you like, I it's, it sounds odd, but I'm responsible for the 
author's inventiveness as embodied in the work. And I'm responsible for it in the sense that as a reader, I have the power to help its life or its death. If, if, as, if as readers, we all read some particular work and we read it badly, carelessly, set it aside, get nothing out of it, it'll die. The works that, that have lived, and if you think of the you know, millions of works that have been written over the centuries you know, in the world, or let's even say in, in the English language, um, very, very few of them have lasted. And that must be because readers have responded to them responsibly, have, have taken the, the trouble to invest their, their energy, their mental energy, their physical energy into reading. Um, so there's something ethical about that. It's not on a par with, you know, the ethics of whatever, the Ten Commandments. It's not a moral issue, really. But it, it is a question of um, responsibility. It's not to say that you're doing something bad if you if you read War and Peace casually as you go to sleep every evening and don't really feel yourself moved by it. But it's just a way to pass the time. Okay, if everybody did that and War and Peace disappeared from the culture, yeah, I think that would be an, an, an ethical loss. You'd lose, you'd lose something valuable in the culture. Um, but I am, I am. It is clear to me that uh, to read f with full awareness, with full willingness to be changed. I keep coming back to that phrase because I think that's that's an important part of it. But with also bringing to bear at the same time your full idioculture. I think that's a a responsible, a responsible act, and in some sense, an ethical act. Thinking more generally, then, how does this impact upon, if you like, the ethical health of a, of a of a society? Well, it would seem to me that the more individuals within a society, within a community, who are able to read literature in that way and respond to other works similarly. Uh, the, the, the more that is the case, the healthier, the ethically healthier that society is, because that is a, a good to be able to not simply use every human creation instrumentally for your predetermined ends, but to be open to the new, the other uh, is, is an ethical good. It's also, I should stress too, perhaps, I don't remember if I stressed this in the book enough, it's, it's also risky. If you open us, if you open yourself to the other, it may be ethically good to be open like that, to be vulnerable like that. But it's also dangerous because the the other doesn't have to be beneficial. The other can be dangerous, can be difficult, can be damaging. Mm. So something we have to be aware of. Um, um, I'd just like to make an observation. It might not be directly related to it, but when what when you said they're not reading a book, it's not. Uh, in and of itself unethical, but uh, suppose we lose a great work of art such as uh, War and Peace. That that sort of reminded me of what's happening in humanities these days and this whole war against humanities, defunding uh, uh, humanities in the United States. It's been going on here in Australia, and I'm pretty sure it's happening in in, in um, uh, England as well. I remember I was talking to someone about the book, and I 
did ask this question, how do you see the future of humanities? And uh, um, I said, unfortunately, there it might be a situation where only some, you know, fairly rich or well-off people might be able to study literature in the future. We don't know. I hope I'm wrong. But uh, I, I definitely do think that this whole war against humanities is, is unethical because great works of art, great works of literature will have something to teach and offer to society to make society a better place. And uh, my final question, it might be a cheeky question. Uh, would do you believe in a canon of literature? Do you believe that we have a canon of literature, high literature, let's say, there's something that separates works of Shakespeare, for example, from, say, a pop writer? Well, we have it. Whether whether it's a good thing or not is a different question. Um, clearly, uh, canons operate in all sorts of ways. Um, in fact, they've become very popular in recent years. You know, the newspapers are full of the 10 best this and the 10 best that. People are constructing canons all the time. And perhaps that's healthy because the more the, the more canons get constructed, the more people put forward their own rankings, the, the more um, confused the whole picture becomes. And so things don't settle down very easily. But but yes, canonicity uh, happens all, all the time. And canonicity is, is produced all the time because we have to be selective. Um, as I was saying, so few works of literature have survived from the millions written. Um, so the process of selection uh, is an inevitable one. Uh, and the process whereby certain excluded types of writing by certain excluded types of writers, uh, the process whereby that exclusion has been challenged is clearly a healthy one. So we, it's now much more expected to have women writers, black writers, minority writers, one sort or another. Um, uh, and all that, all that is very healthy. Uh, but I think the crucial point is that the canon is, and the very word is a misleading word. It's not like the, the original canon or the books of the Bible, which are decided by committee to be the books, you know, the ones that have divine sanction. Um, literary canons, artistic canons are quite, quite correctly, quite rightly subject to constant change. Um, so the arguments about what School school children should read, for instance, which is the beginnings of the canon, or even preschool children. You know, plenty of arguments about what are the right books for five-year-olds, four-year-olds to to be read, to be introduced to. Um, this is a this is a terrain of discussion, and um, as it should be, uh, people having to explain why they value this book over that book, which again. For me, comes back to experience. Why why certain books are capable of um, giving you the experience of great literature, of being moved and powerfully changed by something, um, and criticism works to do this, and book reviews work to do this, and as you say, prizes work work to do this. So, whether the whether there should be some sort of high low distinction is it perhaps a different matter. Um, you know, we have. We have canons of popular 
so-called popular art. We have, you know, I can, having been a teenager in the 60s, I have a canon of great singers and, and you know, folk singers and, and rock artists from the 60s and 70s. Um, and I can certainly say that some of those were as powerfully moving and changing for me and might still be if I listen to something now uh, as any any official canonic piece of work. So I don't think it's a question of high or low or elite and popular. Uh, I think it is a question of um, which artifacts have the power to to produce the the um, transformative effects of of art, um, and it's all. As I was saying, any text could potentially be literary in the future. Any work that might be currently dismissed by the elite establishment as merely pop art could could in future be recognized yeah. by much, you know by those very people um you know when christopher ricks writes a, a great critical book on the lyrics of bob dylan something is happening in the canonicity whether you agree with him or not he's making a, a bid for um canonicity for, for for dylan's um canonic status that he should be in some sort of canon of course when the nobel prize committee given the Nobel Prize for Literature, they're doing the same. Um, mm. But it's Dylan, you know, he's an exceptional artist, but there are many other artists who go under the heading of pop culture who have the same inventive inventiveness as, you know, your John Donne or your Leah Tolstoy. Uh, before ending this conversation, is there a any other book you're you're writing at the moment? Any work you're researching? I'm doing too many things at once, actually. But as, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, there's a book coming out quite soon on um, the. It's really about the idea of inventiveness, but as it plays out in um, 20th century and 21st century fiction, mostly in English, but with some attention to question of translation from Dutch and Afrikaans into English um, and from various parts of the world. It starts with Joyce and, and again the ideas of Joyce's inventiveness and some of some of the features of Joyce's writing that I find still very powerful and then looks at writers who in some ways have followed Joyce not by imitating Joyce but by um, taking encouragement from his uh, um, boldness, if you like, in uh, doing things with language that no one had ever done before, finding new ways to be Joycean, if you like, without actually being Joycean in any in any imitative sense. So it comes right up to to the present, begins with Joyce and ends with a fine modern British writer Tom McCarthy. Mm. But then there are yeah, there is more books on poetry and on. Um, this question of experience is still bugging me. I want to I want to develop that further in thinking about poetry. And another another issue that I really slighted in the singularity of literature that I that I've been thinking more about and writing a bit more about is the is the the non singular, if you like, parts of literature. What I'm calling it's often being called craft, because the experience of a, of a work of art is an experience also 
of the craft and the skill of the writer. Uh, and that's a that's an element of the of the work of art that it has in common with non-works of art, you know, with a, a, a beautiful, I don't know, a beautiful kimono, for instance. It wouldn't change me as a work of art might change me, but I can I can certainly derive deep pleasure from the skill and craft embodied in that piece of in that in that um, texture, in that text in the in the etymological sense of text. So so yeah, so thinking more about how craft and 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 singularity go together in, in works of art. Professor Derek Etheridge, thank you very much for your your time and sharing your thoughts about your wonderful book uh, on New Books Network. Thank you very much, Matez. It's been a great pleasure.